everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Wisdom Words Podcast, where each week we talk to folks who have stories, advice, and life facts, all of which take you one step closer to that feeling of hope. I'm your co-host, Neil Trevi. And I am your co-host, Reno Day. And joining us for a record fourth time, first one, first guest ever to do that. But... It's okay. You can do 400 for all, all we she's, care. Yeah, you, you can do 400 episodes. She's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Forensic yeah. psychologist, Dr. Lena Haji, our favorite guest Haji. ever. Yes. Ever. Uh, you guys ever, so ever, much. ever. I will never. <laughs> we we ever, just adore you. I, I enjoy you guys too. I will never say no to filming with you guys because I adore you guys. So we can do this. Would you, would you explain psychopathy? And what are some of the most famous examples that you can give us? So psychopathy is a little bit misunderstood. Psychopathy is a, it's, it's a personality. It's a character logical disorder, so to speak, even though it's not in the DSM-5, which is, you know, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or the ICD, which is the International DSM. So it's not officially a diagnosis, although I, I, based on the research, it probably soon will be. Psychopathy is a cluster of symptoms, uh, ways of thinking, ways of feeling um, that really defines a certain characterological pattern in someone. So that's a mouthful, but basically um, somebody who is a psychopath, some of the most more prevalent traits are is somebody who has a lack of remorse, a lack of empathy, um, they typically engage in uh, behaviors that only serve them. Uh, they typically go against social norms, breaking the law. Um, so it's a, typically a psychopath would be a criminal, but it's not necessarily synonymous. And I know I'm already digressing, but there's a lot of research coming out about these kind of white collar psychopaths, lawyers, oh. CEOs. Yeah. High-ranking politicians. I can think wow. of, but I will not say his name. Yeah. Um, yeah. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> Some of the more interesting, yeah. very well-known psychopaths are these serial killers. You have Ted Bundy, yeah. Jeffrey Dahmer, the Night Stalker. You know, you have the Son of Sam, Charles Manson. So when I think when in when we think of psychopaths, we tend to think of serial killers, which makes sense because serial killers by nature are typically psychopaths. Um, But again, we're starting to see a lot more research on psychopaths who they call white collar or they call them snakes in suits. And these are people who walk amongst us every day. So they don't necessarily have bodies in their freezer and they're not necessarily stabbing and raping people. They are channeling their psychopathy into more socially appropriate ways, such as politicians, CEOs, Amazon. Oh, you're right. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Totally. It's very yeah. interesting. Oh, it's a very my, interesting I mean, body of research. Besides That's why I was gonna, the light, but I think you brought it up like uh, that. What is the biggest misconception, and is that it? Did people think that oh, psychopath, serial killer is? Does that is that usually the biggest misconception people have? 
that so yes usually and and that's all of us you know even people in the field we think psychopath we think uh again ted bundy jeffrey dahmer scott peterson people who have murdered and raped and done these egregious crimes and really have no remorse no empathy that's what we think of as a prototypical psychopath but again a lot of research in the last 20 30 years has shown that just because people don't murder per se let's think of somebody who we can talk about kind of safely because they've passed on Jeffrey Epstein, right? Jeffrey, yes. Yes. He never went to prison. He never on paper officially committed a crime. He never murdered anyone to our knowledge. However, he was a manipulative, high ranking, sex trafficking, egomaniacal con man who absolutely you know, was probably really high on psychopathy, if not a prototypical psychopath. And yet he didn't have dead bodies in his freezer. He didn't go to prison. He wasn't stabbing people in the middle of the night, like we think, but he was definitely high on psychopathy without a doubt, you know? So that's a perfect example of it, you know, and he was, he was in, you know, New York social circles and California social circles. And he partied amongst the rich and famous and he had money and houses and traveled the world. He lived his best life. So he was very different from a Ted Bundy or a Jeffrey Dahmer, but yet completely psychopathic. So is there really such a thing as an evil gene? So that's very interesting. So the research thus far, um, there's not so much an evil gene, but when you when you try and look at what makes somebody a psychopath, it's really just like any other psychiatric disorder. It's really a biopsychosocial model. So there are biological components, psychological components, social components. So to kind of oversimplify it, it looks like there are some neurological um, indicators that there are predispositions for psychopathy. So for example, um, there's some, there's some brain imaging showing that the frontal part of the brain is a little bit different. The amygdala, which is, um, responsible for like flight or fight or flight response. It works a little differently. Um, there's this hypothesis that if you startle a psychopath and just go boo around the corner, they won't startle because they don't have that fight or flight. They don't have anxiety. Mm. I've never oh, tested wow. that theory. Yeah, I've never tested that theory, but possibly. Um, frontal part of the brain is really responsible for decision-making and impulsivity and things of that nature. There's some research that shows that. So there's some research that shows that the brain makeup function and construct, you know, the way the brain is in psychopaths is very different. That being said, it's not just because somebody's born with a different brain that they'll become a psychopath. You also have this, it's more complex than that. So if somebody is born with a predisposition to psychopathy, but they are raised in a nurturing, loving, uh, trauma-free home, um, they may not be on that trajectory to become a psychopath. They may take that kind of Maybe if they have lack of empathy or remorse, or they're just more of a go-getter, or even if they have manipulation type of tactics, they might end up more in a, I don't know, CEO role, but they will engage in pro-social behaviors. Um, but then if you take somebody with a predisposition for psychopathy and you place them in chronic poverty, lack of love, a trauma, you know, which also alters the brain and they have a horrible upbringing, chances of them becoming a psychopath based on that combination of predisposition and upbringing 
are more likely. That's the oversimplified way to kind of break down um, the research. So I don't know that that was great. <laughs> yeah, there's not an evil gene per se, although there's still a lot of research mm -hmm. in that area. There are some indicators that somebody could be prone yeah. to becoming, you know, a psycho a psychopath. Yeah. Wow. And the, I think yeah. that's a great segue, like to so. Well, let's just well then we will link this in the description. You were recently part of a documentary on uh, mm -hmm. the Gaines River. And one thing, if you observe, like, you know, that documentary, the James Little Ripper's background and say, just for example, Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer's background, right? Two different. Both of them had obviously issues in childhood. There's no denying that. Obviously, there was some sick, weird stuff going on with both of them. One was, however, far more extreme, right? Danny's dad beating the hell and a wife beater and Dahmer's not so there was other verbal stuff going on fighting divorce and all that and not to mention his dad encouraging him to cut open dead animals but which I'm sure has to have some in. but very different oh, wow. yet that each of their crimes there's not one that is less horrendous than the other and in case of Dahmer's I would argue quantity wise even more so because he had far more victims and he got away and I think so I think that's a perfect like point to prove what you're saying. There's so many factors because if we just, it's like you said in a recent misdiagnosis Monday, it's not just about right the childhood trauma meeting. We all have had childhood trauma, yet we're not nowhere near a Dahmer or a, a you know Danny Rollins, right? Right, and that's why it's it's really a multitude of factors because we talked about the biological and the sociological issues, but then there's the psychological stuff too. So Danny Rollins, yeah. horrible of a human being as he ended up being, he had yeah. such a horrific, horrific childhood. I mean, yeah. his father beat him at the age of one for not crawling properly. I mean, he was yeah. severely beat, severely neglected, like ongoing throughout his entire childhood so to be exposed to that level of violence as a baby as a kid as an adolescent that alone does something to your brain so you know you can also look at it from a psychological perspective and think well this is all he knew this is all he learned violence yeah. and abuse and hurting and control and manipulation was the only thing he knew and then he turned around and took right. that thing. and i'm not making excuses for his behavior but it makes no, no, sense not at all clinically that he would take that kind of learned behavior and then apply it to others later on in life and then with jeffrey yeah. dahmer who i agree didn't have you know jeffrey dahmer it seems like his father really did care about him even though he might not have been the most effective parent you know and there's some yeah hypotheses about Jeffrey Dahmer's mother having done uh, drugs and alcohol while he was drugs, in yeah. which lends again to the brain hypothesis with something wrong neurologically. Um, but we have, there are plenty of kids in America who get taught taxidermy at an early age and they, they don't turn into serial killers. So, yeah. you know, again, we still have all these questions, but it really boils down to such a complex combination of factors for somebody to end up that severely psychopathic. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's and is it is it scary to it is to me when when I see what's even scary? I mean, obviously the horrendous crimes that Dahmer created, obviously that's mind blowing, but to for I'm sure for anybody, but when you look at post interviews from prison and from the documentaries, hundreds of them on YouTube of his, 
he's speaking so lucidly. I mean, or at least appears to be so lucid in speaking. And that's what, to me, it's like, how can a person that's been committed the act that he did and now speak so calmly? So I think, I think that's the interesting part of psychopathy, that it, it's not that he doesn't know what he did, and it's not that he doesn't know what he did was wrong. If he didn't know what he did was wrong, he would have probably gotten not guilty by reason of insanity. But he wouldn't qualify for that because he knew right from wrong. He knew legal from illegal. He was very good at hiding it for a long time, and he kept getting away with it. So it's not that he didn't know what he was doing, and it's not that he didn't know what he was doing was wrong. It's that he has a biological incapacity to care that it's wrong. I mean, there's literally, they are literally devoid of empathy and remorse. You know, you and I, we see something. I mean, I, I, I rescued a cat the other day, and my heart was hurting yeah. for like 24 hours. It's like, yeah, because mm -hmm. I took him to the bed and all that kind of stuff. And so we see somebody suffering or we see an injustice and we, we react. We get emotionally, we get flooded, we get anxious, we get sad. But a psychopath, mm -hmm. really, their emotions are very limited. They're usually self-serving and they're usually anger and rage. Other than that, you know, he can talk about it so calmly and so matter-of-factly because unlike us, he doesn't have an emotional reaction to it. You know, oh, if I right. stabbed yeah. somebody and put them in my freezer, I'd be freaking out and I'd be like, oh my God. And then I did this and then I did that. I don't even, I would, wouldn't even be able to speak. You'd have to like sedate yeah. me for six months. Yeah. But a psychopath yeah. doesn't have that emotional, that emotional connectivity is, is, is just, it's void. It's like, that's the best way right. I can explain it. It's, he, they're devoid. So he can say, yeah. And then I cut off their head and then I raped them post-mortem. And then I went and did it oh. again. And they can just talk about it because to them, it's like us discussing a chicken recipe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Did Dahmer have a high IQ? So Is that that's why another, he got away with? No, that's another myth. A lot of people think okay. that um, most Syracos have high IQs. And the research shows that most uh, psychopaths have um, the same IQ bell curve as the rest of society. So you have some with low, some with average, some with high. Ted Bundy, people thought Ted Bundy because he had gotten into law school and he presented very well and he was kind of charming and attractive to some people and he played tennis and he was very affluent, kind of ran in affluent circles. Everybody used to always say he's brilliant, he had a high IQ. Well, he was tested and his IQ was average. So it's oh. less about the actual IQ and the intelligence and more okay. about the ability to put on a manipulative persona. Ah, yes. So a That's lot a of the times, yeah. yeah. So a lot of the times when you interview psychopaths and I've interviewed psychopaths in prison, they're very interesting. They'll start using big words, but they use them wrong, wrongly. So, you know, right. they, they, because they have a narcissistic component, you know, narcissism is a very prevalent trait in psychopaths. And so they'll start talking with, again, these very big, you know, sophisticated verbiage, but they use them wrong. And apparently that was one thing that Ted Bundy did, allegedly. Um, his IQ was in the average range. So no, psychopaths wow. do not have higher IQs necessarily. Okay, cool. Wow. Yeah. That's a great answer. Do, do we... I mean, you, you talked about predisposition and all that. Does every human being have it in them to become psychopath if we get on that path? Or, is, or does it really 
go back to the whole predisposition, circumstances, where were we born, parenting, and all the other, all of the above. I don't, I don't think every human has it in them to become a psychopath. Do I think every human has it in them to maybe commit murder? Yes, that's more something understandable. Like if somebody hurt somebody close to me or, you know, something really egregious happened to my niece or something like that, would I be capable of murder? Possibly, to be perfectly honest, you know? But that's very different from does everybody have the capacity to be a psychopath? No, because most of us have normal brains, normal brain function, um, even most people with histories of trauma, histories of egregious trauma and, tr- and abuse and, and psychological problems don't end up being these kind of narcissistic, manipulative, non-remorseful, non-empathic people. Now that brings us to the question of nature versus nurture, which is what people are always asking, when really the reality is it's, it's a combination of both. But no, I don't believe most humans have the capacity to be psychopaths. I think most humans have the capacity to engage in extreme violence, but for very different reasons than what psychopaths would do it, if that makes sense. That it's also a lot of the boundaries and controlling certain urges. I'm sure we all three of us, everybody watching this, listening to this, must have said, "Man, I'd love to kill that person." Right? Of course, there are people who hurt us deeply, and we, but you know, certainly we wouldn't act on them. And, and I did have a sp- very specific question on that because this was something mentioned in the the Danny Rowling documentaries, voyeurism, right? And I wanted to ask is, mm. where does that boundary lie? What is the difference, just as an example, between voyeurism and someone who simply watches, say, porn to get a heart on? That's a really good question. And they actually asked me that when they interviewed me for the documentary, they might've cut it out, but so, Voyeurism entails, um, you know, getting some kind of pleasure, whether it's sexual arousal or some kind of, you know, some kind of emotional pleasure from watching somebody, but non-consensually. So, you know, if you think about it, like we're on social media all day long, you're watching people, you know, on social media. Is that voyeurism? Well, not really, because people have put themselves on social media. They want to be seen. It's a very different connotation. So voyeurism is really the reason voyeurism is a pathological behavior as opposed to watching porn or scrolling through social media and looking and liking pictures of people we don't even know um, is, is the non-consensual component and the fact that it, it's usually typically hidden. Because a lot of the times... The part of voyeurism that they get off on is the fact that they're not caught. There's almost that adrenaline, in oh. them, like I'm peeking. Oh. No, mm-hmm. there. Whereas somebody uh-huh. who's yeah. posting half-naked pictures on social media, they know what they're doing. They know that you know it's 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 the consent. It's the lack of consent um, that yeah. you're viewing somebody who doesn't know they're being viewed, who likely if they did know would not want to be viewed. And so you're doing this dangerous kind of, uh, no, no taboo behavior, which is also illegal. The main difference between voyeurism and watching other, anything else is really consent, a non-consensual, yeah. non-consensual, non-suspecting one thing that I know, and we touched a little bit on this when the very first time you were you were on this podcast, which was like 
turned into the best, <laughs> one of the best episodes one ever. Of the That's best. why she invited <laughs> you back because we're like, okay, set. she's the best. This... Get her on as many times. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we, we talked about a little bit of this about legally sane and, and legally insane people, you know. And so is there a percentage of these criminals who do this level of crime, say Dahmers or serial killers or whoever, what is the percentage of the people who actually don't know what they were doing versus those who did, even regardless of the reason or their influences or the trauma. Like, is is are there st- statistics on that? So there's statistics on that, and there's a lot of research on that. And and actually, for a very long time, some people and there's still a few researchers that advocate that like, well, if they're a psychopath and their brains are different and they don't have remorse and they don't have empathy doesn't that qualify them as mentally ill and then by default not guilty by reason of insanity because they can't help that they're a psychopath and so that's kind of an understandable argument even though it doesn't resonate with us emotionally you know to kind of say well jeffrey dahmer and ted bundy were psychopaths and it's not their fault that they were psychopaths And so why not find them not guilty by reason of insanity? So the reason is because, again, even if they don't feel remorse and don't have empathy and don't really care that they're hurting other people, the bottom line is they do know right from wrong. And they do know what's legal from what's illegal. And that's the difference between somebody who's not guilty by reason of insanity and a psychopath who would not be found not guilty by reason of insanity. Because especially Jeffrey Dahmer, I mean, he knew enough to hide the bodies. He knew enough to lie. He knew enough to, you know, be a predator amongst low socioeconomic victims who the police probably wouldn't care about, you know, that nobody would go searching for. Same with Ted Bundy. He knew to escape. He knew to change his identity. He knew to go to other states. So all of that, you know, premeditation and cognitive energy, that it takes into hiding your crimes and tells me that you knew right from wrong. You knew illegal from legal. I mean, Ted Bundy escaped jail like two or three times. So that's the difference between just a plain psychopath and somebody by not guilty of reason of insanity who really had no idea what they were doing or thought that they were doing something because of a delusion. Andrea Yates, for example, she killed, she drowned yeah. her five children. And as egregious and horrific as that was, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity because she was psychotic. She was delusional. She really, truly, truly believed that by drowning her children, she was saving them from the devil. And so, and not guilty by reason of insanity is very rare to get. It's like less than 1% of 1% that go for it. But Andrea Yates, it, it was found later that she was absolutely delusional and psychotic and really truly to her core believed that she was drowning her children to save them from the devil. So that's very different than somebody stabbing people, raping them, murdering them, and then concealing it, you know? Yeah. What about Susan Smith? The, the girl that um, drowned her kids in the lake because she wanted a relationship. So she had been married and they had two kids and their marriage didn't work out. And um, because she was single and the, you know, the hot guy in town who had already slept with half the town decided to take her out for a few, you know, nights. And she got it in her head that he was going to ask her to marry her. But you know, he didn't want like the, you know, the kids. Yeah. 
And yeah. so yeah. she drove him in the lake and drowned them. Yeah, and I'm like, that's, oh I, my god! I do remember that. Yeah. Like the kids were in the way of what what kind of life she wanted. Yeah, she tells me, you know, even though I don't, yeah. know, I don't remember the specifics of the case. That's not not guilty by reason of insanity because she had a very clear cut motive. She wanted the new guy. Yeah. Kids were in the way of her goal. And so she said, I'm going to get rid of the kids. Um, unless she was floridly psychotic and hearing voices and delusions and paranoid. And yeah, yeah. if there was no, yeah. it was very goal directed, very goal directed, premeditated, calculated behavior. I want the man. The kids are in the way. I'm going to get rid of you the know, kids. We talk about psychopathy. We talk about legally insane, very low percentage of that actual legally insane people. I remember when, when we had Dr. John on, he said something very interesting. He said, scarily enough, this is obviously, it's not the common case, but it can be, is if you don't see a correlation between, say, childhood or environment or all the other factors that we normally think of when shaping somebody who does horrendous crimes, sometimes it could be boiled down to a sick, twisted pleasure in just doing what they're doing. But unlike the rest of us who may have weird tastes and, oh, I like this, I don't know why I like it. For them, it's the urge that they cannot control that urge at some point, almost like an addiction to a boy. So how common is that where you can look at say, okay, yes, maybe some of it is childhood, maybe it's a trauma, but maybe it's also the fact that, okay, they just cannot control their urges. They get turned on that much that, okay, I have to do this. So yeah, and Dr. John is awesome, and that's actually one of his areas of expertise. And um, so that would point also, again, to like an impulsive, you know, people picture psychopaths as like somebody who hides and they, they're premeditated and they're calculated and they plan everything out, and that can be part of it. But the ironic thing about psychopaths is they're also very impulsive, and they also have mm -hmm. are very uh, self-driven. What I want to do, what I want to feel, and I want it now. Um, so Dr. John has a point because a lot of the times these psychopaths also have kind of impulse control disorders. And especially with these, uh, mass, you know, serial killers, if you notice the pattern, they usually might kill one person a year and then it becomes two people a year and then it becomes a person a month until they get caught. And that urge, just like you said, Neil, it's just like any other addiction, their tolerance level goes up. They need more and more. Um, there's a high, from what I understand, there's an actual high and like yeah. the dopamine and, you know, uh, neurotransmitters, feel good neurotransmitters when they're engaging in the killing. Some of them even get sexual gratification from it. It's a power and a control thing. And then they kill somebody and then, you know, it's kind of like a dip down into reality. And then in order to feed that kind of addiction, or that impulse or quiet that impulse, they need to kill again and again and again. And they'll keep doing it until they get caught. So Dr. John is absolutely correct. It's a lot, that's also found a lot with sex offenders. Um, so yeah, that's, they can be extremely impulsive and extremely impulse driven. Um, that's definitely part of it. And I've, I've interviewed serial killers in prison who have told me, Straight up, the few, far and few who are very honest, they've told me, don't let me out because I'll do it again. I will do it again. And I tell them, you know, I, I appreciate your honesty because at least you're honest. Yeah. 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 But what about them getting caught? Do they ever have that? Is that like, they like the chase, you know, I can get rid of, I can, I can um, beat them, the cops. 
Well, because yeah, I, I, I was going to say, right, is there, I'm sorry to interrupt, just a quick note, if I can add to that question a little bit, because I was like, there has to be, is, or maybe not has to be, there is some, is there some logic to, that's one of the reasons why someone would keep doing it, because they maybe after the second or third time, it's like you, you get that, well, damn it, caught me yet. I mean, look at Dahmer, right, the police actually, the incompetent policeman who actually put the victim back in his apartment or whatever in one of the victim's cases so is that a factor too that you do it enough times you become like wait a minute they haven't caught me yet and look and i'm getting away with it repeatedly right absolutely and remember there is a very there's a, a huge narcissistic component to psychopaths so they mm -hmm. always think they're smarter than they're better than they're more efficient than the cops aren't going to catch me. Plus, they don't have that anxiety factor. So, you know, they don't have this constant fear of getting caught. They just know that they don't want to get caught because that would impede their plans of carrying on what they want to do. Um, but I think the narcissism is really prevalent here. Like, I, again, I'm better than I'm smarter than I've outsmarted them this far. And that's usually how they end up getting sloppy and getting caught because they think, well, I haven't gotten caught this far. So I'm just going to keep going and keep going and keep going. And, you know, especially back in the 70s and 80s when there wasn't a lot of communication between different uh, law enforcement agencies and DNA databases and all the technology that we have now, it was so easy for these people to kill in California, then go to Oregon, kill in Oregon, go to Florida, go to Texas, because there was no interstate kind of communication. So there's this theory that the reason there are less psycho uh, um, serial killers now is because there's more communication, there's DNA, there's more uh, interstate law enforcement, you know, information being exchanged. Um, but yeah, you know, the more it's, it's self-reinforcing Jeffrey Dahmer yeah. didn't get caught the first, second, third, fifth, sixth time. Why is he going to think I'm going to get caught or have a fear of getting caught? He's just going to keep going until the gig is up. Yeah. And, and then, and then to have a cop put the victim back in his house. Come on. what oh, He probably That's just so felt high that none of us have ever felt. That scene was so hard to watch it was so hard to watch it was so palpable you know he was yeah. clearly a child he was clearly drugged the cops just didn't care yeah. I mean, and that, woman, that poor woman was trying to convince them that something is seriously wrong here and they didn't listen to her that's well do you do you think if she was white they would have listened to her yes possibly i'm sorry I mean, I think, I think, if, I think if she was white, I think if she was white, they might have listened to her. I think if he hadn't been Asian, they might have taken it more seriously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. if Jeffrey Dahmer had not been white and he had been an ethnic serial killer, mm -hmm. maybe they would have looked mm -hmm. at him a little closer. Mm -hmm. I mean, we'll never yeah. know, but we can yeah. hypothesize and infer based on the times mm -hmm. and based on what we know now and the fact that those cops were suspended. And then reinstated, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the racism in that documentary was palpable. It was really hard to watch. One a, a concluding question, a good one would be, what's the most um, extreme prisoner you've ever been asked to evaluate? Oh, yes. I'm going to say that's a good question now. <laughs> it should be fun. <laughs> so, um, it's I can't. I, I can't break Tripa. 
I cannot. No names. Can't bring him no up. names. You can just. No yeah, names. No, no, name. no, no, no. Just, just yeah. a brief, like you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've had, a, I've had so many, I've, I've had, I've worked with a lot of psychopaths, serial killers, sex offenders. I think the most egregious one or one of the ones that sticks out to me the most is a sex. I was at working at a sex offender hospital, um, in California. And there was one guy there who uh, was discovered with, uh, 30 vaginas in his freezer. You're welcome. Mm. Oh, I'm glad I did in mind and science. There's, there's a promo shot. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I just did a podcast with my friend who's a psychiatrist. I saw that. I yeah. saw that. That was the video one where you yeah. guys were like the t- in the and, diner restaurant yeah. type deal, right? Yeah, and he, he asked I saw me the that. same that was, I love that like, one. I loved it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of HIPAA, how do you handle talking to a, a sex offender? You can't be in the room alone with him, can you? You have to have a guard. <laughs> I've been in rooms alone with people who have murdered over 20, 30 people. I've been in rooms where guys have spit on me. I've had penises pulled out on me. I've been in rooms with guys who have pulled out their intestines. I've been in rooms with guys who have cut out and swallowed their testicles in front of me. I've been in rooms where people you cannot even imagine. So. Uh, ideally, the outside world would like to think that in prison, mental health and medical staff is always with a correction officer. The bottom line is they, that's not how it works. I mean, you have different levels of security in prisons. If guys are always aggressive, always uh, violent, if they're in close management status or in solitary confinement, they'll be handcuffed, they'll be shackled for your protection, they'll be in a separate cell. If they're really on high alert, you have a correction officer with you, but really correction officers should not be in the room because it is a HIPAA, compl- it is a HIPAA violation. But the mm-hmm. majority of inmates, yeah. you know, in medium and minimum and even max security prisons, like I say this all the time, you treat them with respect, they'll treat you with respect. So barring yeah. somebody really antisocial and really is always violent and yelling and cursing and aggressive, barring those guys, you know, if you're in a if you're in a room with an inmate and he, you know, I mean, there, of course, there's a danger, always a danger in working in correctional facilities. But your best weapon is your mouth. You tell these inmates, look, I'll, I'll treat you with respect. You treat me with respect. We're gonna sit in this room and we're gonna conduct therapy or we're gonna conduct an evaluation. Ninety-five percent of them will respect you for sure. You guys are fabulous. <laughs> Thank you for having me again. Oh, always, thanks. I love you guys. Thanks, kiddo. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Right. Have a good day.